Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Last session, which is called Grace and Our Service, but I only had five sessions and I had to combine six, so I just titled it that. But we're really going to talk, kind of combine grace in our selection and service because I don't think you'll understand. Well, you'll, I'm not saying you won't understand. You won't appreciate talking about how we can serve God until you appreciate what he says in chapters 9 through 11. A section of Romans that is very intimidating theologically often skipped over by pastors who preached through Romans. I remember the first time I preached through Romans in my church, I only went through chapters 8. In fact, I've had two pastors talk to me in the last few months who said, yeah, I'm starting a series in Romans. We're going to go through chapter 8. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, yeah, I can identify with that. Chapters 9 through 11 get a little bit sticky. So who is grace for? What we've been talking about in chapters 1 through 8, especially viewing Paul's climactic, almost climactic statement about what grace has done for us is we see all the benefits of grace to the individual. But now Paul is going to open our eyes to what God is doing in the world to the Jews and the Gentiles and how he's going to put a big bow on it and wrap up his purpose, not just for us as individuals, but for the world itself. And so we come to these sections, and I would divide it uh, as chapter 9 is basically talking about Israel's past rejection of God's righteousness. Chapter 10 is basically talking about Israel's present, to that time, contemporary rejection of God's righteousness. And then chapter 11 will talk about Israel's reception of God's righteousness and their final restoration. So... Paul is very grieved that his fellow brother Jews do not have the righteousness that Christ has offered. And that's how he starts out chapter 9 by talking about his great sorrow and continual grief in his heart. And he, was, he says in verse 3, he would wish that he could even be accursed for his, from Christ for his brethren. Now, I don't know that I would ever say that about anybody. Uh, cut me off from Christ so that someone else could be saved, I guess... That's the ultimate act of love there. Um, so he is grieved, and, but he's saying that their rejection is consistent with God's promise. Israel has had a history of rejecting Jesus, the Messiah, but his prophets all along the way. They've been described as stubborn and stiff-necked by Stephen in his little uh, soliloquy in Acts chapter 7. Um, but Paul makes the point that not all Israel is Israel. In other words, just because you're born a Jew does not make you a, a son of Abraham. Those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. So he says in verse 8, that, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed, the seed of Abraham. And that's you and I. Gentiles can actually be sons of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians amplifies that point. Now, and then he goes on to talk about how God in his purpose 
has a sovereign will, and he illustrates it in the story of Rebekah having Jacob and Esau in verse 12. And it was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Esau was the elder born first, who would normally have all the inheritance and the firstborn blessing. Jacob was born second, but God wanted to choose Jacob. He decided to choose Jacob. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. I think love shows that he is establishing a special relationship with Jacob. Esau, I have hated a figure of speech in that world. That meant I have not chosen him. And that's the same thing that Jesus said when he said, unless you, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your father, mother, brother, sister. He's not telling us to literally hate our family to be his disciple. He's telling us that we have to choose him first over everyone else. And so God is simply saying he decided to choose Jacob. And Jacob, of course, represents the nation of Israel. He was renamed Israel, and he represents really Israel as a nation. But God's rejection and, uh, of Israel uh, in the past has been according to his justice. Remember the question was asked way back in chapter 3, what about Israel's unbelief? Does that mean that God will not be faithful to his promises? And Paul said there, certainly not. And he says here, certainly not, in verse 14. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So it's not of him who wills or runs, but of God who shows mercy. So it's not the one who deserves it or can run the fastest or work the hardest or, or behave the best. It's God in his sovereignty who decides a uh, who he will show mercy upon. He uses Pharaoh as an example. And he, he says he raised up Pharaoh so that he could show his power in, them, in him. But you remember the story of Pharaoh. It was God's sovereignty that Pharaoh would be in power and that Israel would be delivered. But when he was confronted by Moses, it says in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it starts to say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So which is it? Well, it's both and. God in his sovereignty chose to use Pharaoh, but Pharaoh in his free will decided to reject Moses and his message. So he's talking here about who true Israel is. And by the way, Israel is never used of Gentiles. So in no way does the church replace Israel or Gentiles. We as Gentiles in the church replace Israel. Israel and Gentiles are always extinct. Uh, extinct. A distinct, okay? Their rejection is consistent with God's promise and their rejection is consistent with God's justice. And so he just goes on to say, why does he still find fault? Who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why'd you make me this way? Doesn't the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and the other for dishonor? Who can say to God, why did you do this? God doesn't have to explain himself. And so when God sovereignly chose the nation of Israel, we say, why? They were disobedient. They were sinful. They killed his prophets. They killed his Messiah. Why did God choose Israel? Someone quipped, how odd of God 
to choose the Jews? But the answer really is very simple. Why did God choose Israel? Because God chose Israel. And he doesn't have to explain it to you or to me. Because God would use, as we're going to see, their disobedience, their sin, and rejection in his ultimate purpose to restore the world under his rule. So God is not obligated to explain himself. He's chosen the nation of Israel. And the ironic thing is, in verse 30, is what then shall we say that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, the Gentiles weren't looking for righteousness, so to speak, have attained to righteousness through Christ, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law to think that they could become righteous, did not attain God's righteousness. Isn't that ironic? In other words, the Jews thought that the Gentiles had to become like them in order to be saved, to be God's people. The irony is that the Jews had to become like Gentiles to obtain God's righteousness. And so God works that irony into his plan for the whole world. When we come to chapter 10, he's continuing this discussion about Israel's present rejection of God's righteousness and their refusal to accept his, right, their, his righteousness through Jesus Christ. And again, his prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now, he wants to see the salvation of the nation. He's talking about Israel as a nation, but nations involve individuals. So we would include individuals in that thought and prayer. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They are ignorant of God's righteousness, trying to establish their own righteousness. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ ended the necessity for them to seek righteousness through the law but since they rejected Christ, they've rejected God's righteousness. And then in verse 5, he says that Moses writes about this righteousness, which is of the law, that the man who does these things shall live by them, quoting, um, I forget where that's from, Leviticus perhaps. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. The word what does it say? The word is near you. He's quoting Deuteronomy 30. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith with we preach. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Sometimes this passage is misunderstood. It's misunderstood in this way, that you have to make a public confession of Jesus in order to be saved. You have to say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You have to surrender him. Uh, sometimes they explain confession as a life that's lived in obedience to him or a life that is surrendered to him and committed to him, uh, to Jesus as master. Uh, sometimes confess is interpreted here as baptism, confessing Christ in baptism, but the word confess simply means to agree with. It's made composed of two words, homo legeo, to say the same thing or to agree with. And what Paul, I think, is saying by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30, which is saying you're looking here and you're looking there, but it's on the tip of your tongue. See, in those days, people didn't have 
the digital Bibles. They didn't even have personal Bibles. They had the scrolls that were read in the synagogues. And if they wanted the Word of God, they memorized it. They taught it. It was on the tip of their tongues, always memorizing, reciting. And the scripture that they quoted predicted the coming of a Messiah. And so Paul is saying, why are you looking here and there for God's righteousness? It's right there on the tip of your tongue. You've been teaching it. You've been saying it. You've been reciting it. You've been memorizing it. Just agree with what you already know. Agree. You see, some people take this passage and want to make salvation difficult. You have to make a public confession. You have to do this or that. Paul's simply saying, it's easier than you think. You don't have to look high and low. Just agree with what God has already said and what you've learned. And that righteousness will be yours. So why does he talk about the mouth and the heart? Because Deuteronomy 30 talks about the mouth and the heart. There's an intimate, close connection between what we believe and, and what, we would, what we teach and what we believe. And I think that's the connection there between the mouth and the heart. I have grace notes on that on the line, and I have a fuller explanation of the Bible. I know it can be a lot to digest, and I can't spend a lot of time on it. But his point is that whether you're Jew or Gentile, verse 11, the Scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. God's going to keep his promise to anyone. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. He's not just talking to the Jews now because he realizes in Rome there's both groups. And he says, For the same Lord over all is rich towards all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I take that in the sense of whoever asks him for salvation, whoever asks him for help. He's quoting Joel 2.32, which talks about the coming judgment. But whoever calls on the Lord will be saved from that judgment. And that's why some people think Paul is only making this promise to the nation of Israel. But I say again that the principle of whoever calls on the Lord is being transferred to the New Testament as a principle that whoever calls on God is delivered. When we ask God for his help, we're delivered. If we call on him for deliverance from sin, for the gift of eternal life, he hears us, he delivers us, we will be saved. So Israel rejects the gospel. How can they call on him who not they believe? How can they believe on him they've not heard? How can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach unless they are sent? And so hearing, he says, comes by the word of God. But the word of God has to be preached, so someone has to be sent. How important it is that we go, that we send. Not everybody can go, but everybody can send. We should have a strong missionary emphasis in our personal outlook and in our churches. And I know that this church is involved in missions, I'm sure. Our church is involved in missions. Are you involved in missions? Are you giving towards missions so that people can hear and believe? I used to tell my church, you know, you may not, you can give to our missions fund, which goes to selective missionaries, but, you, but even if you don't want to support them, everybody should have their missionary. Everybody should have their missionary or missions organization. So Israel continues to reject the gospel in spite of that. And because of that, God has judicially blinded them. He has judicially blinded them from understanding the truth. But that doesn't mean that all Jews are blind because he says that there is a remnant of grace. And that's we get into chapter 11 then. 
Israel's future restoration in God's purpose. Their rejection is only partial and temporary. In verse 10, he, uh, 1 in chapter 11, he says, I say then, has God cast away his people again? He answers, certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's saying, I'm living proof that God has not given up on the Jewish people. I'm Jewish, the Jew of Jews, in other words. God hasn't cast away his people who he foreknew or determined to have a purpose for. And then he cites the example of Elijah. Remember Elijah in the cave saying, oh, woe is me, I'm the only one here. And God says to him, no, I've got 7,000 other people just like you who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so at that present time, there is a remnant. Even so, at that, this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. God in his grace has always had a remnant of those who will believe in him. And throughout Jewish history, in spite of their rebellion and their overall rejection of the prophets and their teaching on the Messiah and ultimately the Messiah, there have always been Jews who have believed in him. You may know of a Jewish believer today. I have a couple friends who are Jewish believers today. Arnold Fruchtenbaum is a Jewish believer. There's always a remnant of grace. And then he explains what grace is in verse 6, one of my favorite verses. And if by grace it's no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. And if it's of works, it's no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. It's kind of a tongue twister, mind twister, isn't it? But what he's saying is grace and works don't mix. And that God has chosen a remnant by grace, not because of what they've done, but because he has chosen a remnant by grace. And by grace wasn't merited by their works. And we can apply that to salvation, that we cannot introduce works into our salvation or it ceases to be salvation by grace. Because the moment you offer a payment, excuse me, offer a payment to God of your commitment or your promise or your obedience, then suddenly God is obligated and owes you. And that's not grace because grace has to be a gift. And so in verse 7, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So the remnant had their eyes opened by God's grace, and the rest have been in spiritual blindness. To the, they have not understood the gospel. But, verse 11, does that mean that God's done with them? Have they stumbled that they should fall again? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So, here's what God has done. Thank you for changing the PowerPoint and correcting the typos so I don't have to point it out. Israel's rejection resulted in the Gentiles' reception of the gospel. Their reception of the gospel caused and provokes Israel to jealousy so that someday Israel will be saved. In other words, God has used the sinfulness of mankind to accomplish his ultimate purpose. He's used the sinfulness of Israel to turn his promises towards the Gentiles, you and me, so that we can come in until our time is done. He talks about 
God has broken off some of the branches, the Jews, so that he could graft in the wild branches. That's us, the Gentiles, until that the fullness of time comes, or however he says it. I'm looking for that. I'm not seeing it. But he warns the Gentiles, us Gentiles, that we shouldn't take it for granted or become arrogant about it or become unbelieving because he says if God didn't spare the natural branches, he may not spare us either. So God in his sovereign purpose has used Israel's rejection to bless the Gentile world which will provoke Israel and ultimately result in Israel's salvation. What a plan. I probably wouldn't have thought of that plan (laughs) in any way. I would have given up on a sinful nation a long time ago. Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. When will that be? When will the fullness of Gentiles come in? I don't know. There's still a lot of work to do. Still a lot of Gentiles that need to know about the Lord. We'll let God call that one. But verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. Zechariah describes that Jesus will return and they will see his wounds And they will look upon him, and Israel will mourn and weep because they recognize they've crucified their Messiah. I think this is at the end of the tribulation period. And they will be delivered as a nation, finally restored fully in accordance with the new covenant in the Old Testament. And what it says here is that all Israel will be saved. So in verse 28, concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. In other words, the Jews seem to be enemies of the Gentiles, but God really uses that to bless the Gentiles with the message of salvation. And then verse 29, such an important verse. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, what God promised to Israel through the fathers and the covenants will not be revoked, will not be replaced, will not be broken. His promise His promises are irrevocable. God will accomplish everything he promised. Israel will be saved. You know, we can apply that to our personal salvation as well. If God made a promise to give us eternal life based on faith in Jesus, his promises are irrevocable. And so what he has done in chapters 8 and told us what God's grace has done for us personally, he now illustrates by how God's grace has done the exact same thing Thing for the nation of Israel as well as the Gentiles and God is starting to put all the pieces together and we're starting to see God weaving together something very beautiful made out of the fabric of sin disobedience and rebellion and only God could do something like that My wife used to do needlepoint. She mostly quilts these days, but she used to do needlepoint. And one time she needlepointed what was one of my favorite verses, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, for the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the earth that he may show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are completely his. And she presented it to me as a present Christmas or birthday. I forget. 
I looked at it and I saw a tangle of threads. Turn it over, stupid. Oh, okay. There it is. You see, we're looking at the wrong side of history. We're looking at the mess around us. We're looking at nations crumbling, falling apart, dictators running over, roughshod over the world with their evil schemes. We're looking at Israel in rejection. We're looking at Gentiles rebelling. We're looking at nations raging. Turn it over and God's got a wonderful plan. And he's going to weave it all together. When Paul understands that and realizes that, he says in verse 33, he, he, he is not teaching theology. He stops teaching theology and he starts worshiping. Oh, he says. Let's read that again. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Paul's saying, I can't add anything to this except my worship. God's grace has brought me to my knees in worship and wonder. For who's known the mind of the Lord? Who could have figured this out? Who's become his counselor? Who could have made this suggestion to him or advised him in this direction? Or who's gone to him that he should repay him? Who's gone and put God in debt that God's just paying us back? Of course, the answer is no one. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Where does grace lead us? It leads us to a mountaintop. And what do we do when we get to the mountaintop and we can go no further? We worship. Good theology should result in good doxology. Doxology means words of praise. That's why good theology is so important. You don't separate worship from theology. It should be in our songs, and our songs should be because of our theology. We praise God for his grace. Probably one of the most emotional moments I've ever had was when I backpacked high up into the Rocky Mountains of um, Montana, the Beartooth Wilderness, for 10 days with a bunch of guys. And before we started the descent, we stood on top of a mountain and looked down over God's creation. We sang, How Great Thou Art. And I've never been so stirred in my soul as to look at God's creation and sing worshipfully, How Great Thou Art. Paul's singing that in his heart when he says, Oh, you know, he's write, not writing theology anymore. It's as if he puts his pen down. Who is it, Tertius, you say? Tertius has to write it for him because Paul's eyes are full of tears. It's time to worship. So grace leads us to a life of worship. But see, a life of worship is a life of service. And that's where we go next, to chapter 12. I'm sorry we didn't put the verse up there. What should grace motivate? It should motivate worship, but it should also worship motivate service. And so the very next verse, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Therefore means Paul is drawing a conclusion based on what he has said. And so he's concluding this. 
I urge you, now that you have heard 11 chapters of grace, not commands, but 11 chapters of what God has done for you, now, here's what you can do for him. Offer your bodies a living sacrifice, which is a reasonable service to God. What's the reasonable response for somebody who's done everything for you? It's to do something for them. Not as an obligation or have to, but because you want to. You want to say thank you. You want to show your gratitude. How do we do that? We offer him our bodies. Paul certainly had in mind Old Testament sacrifices. An Old Testament sacrifice would be put on the altar and slain. One, one and done, though. The sacrifice was only good one time. But you know what? We have the life of Christ in us, and we can be living sacrifices, and we can use our bodies for his service. Why does he use the term body, offer your bodies? Because everything I am is in this cracked vessel right here. This package has my brain, my hands, my feet, where I go, what I think, what I hear, what I watch. It's all in this body. And if I give this body as a living sacrifice to God, that's a reasonable act of service. It's the only thing that makes sense to do. So the critic says, Oh, grace will just lead you to sin. Grace is a license to sin. Grace encourages immorality. It's such a false argument, such a, a red herring. In all of my years of ministry, I have yet to meet one Christian who says, God has forgiven me all my sins. I'm saved by grace. I'm secure forever. I'm going to go and do whatever I want to. I have never met that person. I know that person lives. I've heard a couple testimonies from people that they know someone like that, but I have not met that person. Here's who I've met. Thousands and thousands of people across the world who said, God has saved me from sin forever, and I'm secure, and I want to serve him and tell people about him and get to know him better. That's what service is. That's what discipleship is. And so when we come to chapter 12, we talk about service. We're really talking about what a disciple does in response to grace. And the first thing we do is we don't let this world shape us in its thoughts and philosophies. And we don't conform to this world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now that we've gotten this new capacity, we let God's word and spirit and power transform us into new people who can serve God. I just want you to notice this pattern of motivation, and I hope you take it to heart as a model for how you approach ministry or even approach your own Christian life or advise someone else in their Christian lives. Because many of us are tempted to say, okay, here's the Christian life. You need to pray, you need to read the Bible, you need to go to church, and we suddenly give them a list of rules. Is that really the Christian life? Is that how Paul approached it? For 11 chapters, he never tells us to do anything except maybe think a certain way in chapter 6. Why? He wants us to know what God did for us so that we, from not a legalistic motivation, but from a sincere heart, respond to him with thanksgiving. That's a different motivation, you see. And so he doesn't tell us to do anything until chapter 12. And if you look at other Writings of Paul, like Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, you'll see the same pattern as we've noted here in this list. The same pattern. What God has done for us, what we can do for him. Beliefs before behavior. 
Grace before service. That's how Paul approached ministry. Ministry and Christian life is more than just a list of things to do. Well, he gives a list of things that we could do to serve him, and we don't have time to go into it, but in chapter 12, he starts with, um, and I'm just saying there are many motivations to serve God, love and gratitude are at the top of that list. And what we have gone from then is an understanding of our salvation to a life of discipleship and commitment. But that discipleship and commitment and obedience doesn't make sense unless we understand what God has done for us. And our motivation, therefore, becomes an internal motivation to please God. Instead of, instead of a have-to life, we live a want-to life. And you've seen a similar chart to that. And so when he talks about service, he talks about service in regards to ourselves in chapter 12 at the beginning there and in regarding society. He tells us to obey government, pay our taxes, even that honors God. And then he talks about how to deal with those who are weaker brothers in chapter 14 and an extended section there about those who might disagree on non-essential things. We shouldn't, he says, accept others just to argue about non-essential things. What do I mean by non-essential things? There's some Bible, there's some things in the Bible that it's very clear are black and white, wrong and right, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. There are other things in the Bible that are not black and white, but we call them gray areas. What kind of music to listen to? What kind of clothes to wear? What kind of things should we watch on TV? Um, what is our approach to alcohol? There's gray areas differ with the culture. You see, and, and in Rome, that was especially important because they had the Jewish culture merging with the Gentile culture, and the Jews, Jews were scrupulous about certain things, about eating certain meats, like not offered to idols. They wouldn't do that. But the Gentiles didn't have a problem with it. Most Gentiles probably didn't. They liked a good deal. They'd get the meat offered to idols at a discount, and they would eat it, and the Jews were disgusted by that, perhaps. But he talks about eating and drinking. The so wine could have been involved in that as well. We don't have time to go into chapter 14, but the point is, is that the weaker brother is the one who has certain scruples that may not be spelled out in the Bible, but his conscience doesn't allow him to do something. And Paul says, because Jesus died for him and God's accepted him, don't you reject him and argue with him and give him a hard time or cause him to stumble by doing the things that his conscience does not allow. And I think what he's saying is give that person space to grow. That weaker brother needs to grow stronger in his views towards things like what to watch, what to eat, what to drink, etc. We want to jump on people and make them conform to our standards that are not spelled out in the Bible. That's called legalism. There's a legalism when it comes to salvation that we have to earn our do works in order to earn salvation. There's also a subtle legalism that's cultural. You see, people get the message that you don't wear blue jeans in church. <laughs> Not here, but in some churches in the U.S., I would probably be frowned upon for doing that. Or saying the word darn or gosh or heck, which we know are disguised curse words. I had a friend in seminary, and he was preaching like his first sermon. He used to be a long-haired, drug, drugged hippie. He's preaching his first sermon, and he, he used the word damn. And a lady came up to him afterward and said, 
I don't, I don't appreciate you sinning. And he said, well, ma'am, to you it might be a sin, but to me it's progress. <laughs> we were in India. We always have a tes- testimony time after our training, and we allow the people get up there. And one, one pastor gets up there. He's, he's discovered grace. He's rejoicing. He says, I am so damn happy. <laughs> Fine with me. I'm glad you're so damn happy. <laughs> but see, some of you might be bothered more by the fact that I said damn than that this pastor's been freed from his legalism and his fear and his insecurity. We've got to give people room to grow, but let God do the work. Because Romans 14 says, before, you're not his master. Before his master, he must stand. And before his master, he will stand. And then he goes on to say something very important that we don't have much time to get into, but he says... You have to give an account for yourself. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, chapter 14, verse 10, to give an account for ourselves. I don't have to answer for what your choices are. Nelson, I'm glad. I don't have to answer for Brother Graham or Brother Grant or John or anyone else in this room. I have to answer for the choices I make before God with a sincere conscience. And if I do something against my conscience, the scriptures say there in chapter 14, if it's not of faith, it's sin. Faith meaning not faith in Christ, but not doing it with full conviction that it's right. If I do something that I'm not convinced is right, then to me, it is sin. So don't cause your brother to sin by what you do, because why for the sake of your belly and eating would you cause your brother to sin? So that's how we work out grace. Grace how we can serve God and how we can work out grace among one another. I pray that the Orchard Church is a haven of grace. I grew up in, near Baltimore, Maryland, and up there there's a town called Harve de Grasse. And I think it was named by a French, French uh, military captain, whatever, who came over during the Revolutionary War, and it reminded of his peaceful harbor at home, so he called it Harbor de Grasse, Harbor of Grace. I pray for you that, that the Orchard Church is a harbor, harbor of grace, where people come and they hear a gracious gospel of truth and clarity, where you're saved, not by works, but by what Jesus has done. And then they can live their lives with liberty and freedom and that you can watch them change and appreciate the change and not insist that they be like you, but help them go down that path to be like Jesus Christ. That's what grace does. It left Paul speechless. Kind of leaves me speechless. I have nothing else to say. It's all by God's grace from beginning to end. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.